band with a smooth style of syncopation. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Gaucho Amigos. My name is Alex Price, and if you're listening, you probably found this podcast through the Bad Dan Takes Twitter account. I just want to thank you all for following and playing along with the bits. Uh, the account has been a real source of pleasure for me for the last few years, so thank you. Before we get to my conversation with Harry today, I just want to quickly fill you in on uh, the background of this project and explain just what exactly this podcast is. A while ago, this was back in 2021, a friend and I decided it would be fun to do a Steely Dan themed podcast uh, using the Twitter account as a sort of launching pad. And we wrote a full outline pitched the concept to a few networks, had meetings, sent you know numerous emails back and forth, and this process went on for months and months, but unfortunately never came to fruition. However, while this was going on to practice for the podcast, because I had no real podcasting or any kind of journalistic experience, I started reaching out to some Steely Dan fans on Twitter. Mostly people I had already had at least a brief Steely Dan chat with over DM and asked them if they would be willing to meet on Zoom for an hour and chat about Steely Dan. I recorded these conversations in the hopes that when the podcast started, I could incorporate some of the material into whatever the final product was. But because the podcast didn't end up happening, these conversations just ended up sitting in limbo. My friend got busy with other projects, and I also didn't really have time to devote to doing it, you know, having a full-time job and other obligations and responsibilities. 
Anyway, fast forward to the beginning of this year, I decided I'd like to give the podcast thing another shot. So basically what I decided was to do a kind of low-key version of the original podcast concept where the Zoom conversations would essentially be the crux of the podcast. And so that's what this is. Now, some of the conversations I'm going to share with you are from back in 2021, but most of them are actually more recent. Because when I decided to try and revive the project, I started reaching out to folks on Twitter again and doing more of these Zoom chats. So, for example, today's conversation was recorded just a few weeks ago. Uh, so, Harry, my guest today, is actually a bit different than most of the guests that I'll be featuring on this show. Uh, because he's someone I actually know in person and have known for a long time. He's been a close friend of mine since we met freshman year of college and someone I bonded with over music for many years. We share quite a bit of overlap in our musical interests and taste, and we've collaborated musically. In college, we played in a whole bunch of different bands together. But oddly, one band that I don't think we've ever really talked about is Steely Dan, even though we're both fans. So... Here's our conversation. Now, I'll be posting these episodes weekly, and I'll be sharing a little bit more about what the goals of this podcast uh, are in our next episode, but I wanted to get all of you to our conversation you know, as quickly as possible. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Harry. Enjoy. I bought Countdown to Ecstasy from this like really cool used record store that opened up uh, near my house and uh, got into that. I still sometimes think that that might be my favorite album of theirs. Really? You know, which is weird because it's actually really, it doesn't sound like a lot of the other, you know, it's like such a like a live band, like yeah, it's like it's one of the more like... spontaneous sounding records of theirs, definitely, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's extremely different than, you know, where they ended up a few albums later, for sure. Right. But it might be a good sort of like a good window in, in a way, because of that. Like, they sound a little more like a rock band or something, right. you know. But Although um, I, I do feel like it's a little bit more of their distinctive, some of the yeah. more elements that make them distinctive start to show up on that album, you know, in comparison to even Can't Buy a Thrill. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. It's but it is like it's it's a pretty guitar heavy record, I would yeah, say. For sure. In my memory at least. I <laughs> like in my brain it is. I don't know. Maybe I put it on and I'm like, oh, actually I don't really hear that much guitars, but I, I feel like it is pretty like you know, like something like Boston Rag is almost like a riff song, you it know. Is. Um so that was that was like my actual like window in, but then like throughout all of college i don't think we listened to steely dan at all really yeah i don't think that the kind of uh subversive subtleties of steely dan uh, registered with us in college right i feel like there... we were looking we were listening more to or, or looking for music that was just kind of more obviously mind-blowing right you know, like, right um, yeah definitely Although, you know, we got into Krautrock, we were listening to like, you know, Can and Harmonia and, and those bands and Brian Eno. Absolutely, or... yeah. Like a lot of the stuff that we were listening to, especially by the end of college, I feel like was really leaned heavily on repetition. 
yeah like drone and pulse and yeah like sort of modal structures and things like that yeah like and, steve reich I, I know i remember that was like yeah hearing yeah exactly music for 18 musicians that was the kind of thing or or Right, which is definitely drawing <laughs> off of jazz as well, just not at all yeah. in the same way that Steely Dan does. You know, like it's just a completely different like pathway or something. Yeah, I just um, didn't get it because I remember, I remember you turned me on to um, Ween. You, you oh, yeah, the, yeah, right, the mollusk, the yeah. mollusk, and then I think I went out and got uh, white pepper. Do you remember oh, this? And there's, and there's a there's like a Steely Dan song yeah. on there, right? Yeah, there is, yeah. There's uh, that song, uh, Pandy Fackler. Yeah, it's kind of lazy, but they do nail the. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually remember you were kind of defending. I didn't like it because I was like, this reminds me of Steely Dan, who I don't like, and you were kind of oh. defending it. So I think you actually were a fan. And... Maybe, yeah, maybe I was, and I just don't. The thing is, <laughs> especially at that time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's still the case today, like. I don't do a very good job at like doing the research, you know, especially yeah. with like with music that I'm interested in, you know, and I'm like, at least now that I'm an adult, I'm like fully aware of that. And so I can correct those mistakes when they happen. But as, like back then, I probably, you know, I'd probably listen to the first side of Countdown to Ecstasy 20 times. <laughs> and I and I think I had Can't Buy a Thrill as well. And I'd listen to like some of that. Yeah. You know, and that was it. You know, yeah. like I, and then I think, you know, like I knew some of the like, Hey, 19, obviously I knew that song, you know, yeah. a couple of those like radio tracks. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I only, I, I had never heard anything after um, like the first three albums, like until yeah. after college. I don't know how that happened, but I do have yeah. one other, um, one other anecdote from college that I remember where Steely Dan came up is, um, do you remember that uh, history class we took with uh, a professor named Tom Wilson? Oh yeah, the uh, the Asian history uh, like freshman year, the history of Asia, or it was called something else. Yeah, something along those yeah. lines. Um, yeah. But I just remember he uh, he referenced the song Bodhisattva in class, and I remember you getting a kick out of that. Ah, uh, yeah. I yeah. think like we after class, like we went back to the dorms, and you were like, "Yeah, the song," and then. <laughs> <laughs> that was yeah. the end of that but right right and i probably like because we had my roommate and i we had like a turntable and all the records and everything there that was like the one thing that we had in common yeah probably like put it on right because it's and the he... first song on uh, countdown right <laughs> right so i definitely heard it <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah and he was he was like he had like this like the horn rim glasses and he'd wear like uh like mock turtlenecks and yeah. like black you know and he was just he was just such a steely dan guy in retrospect he was you know like i don't think he drove a miata but he drove you know <laughs> like it was something in that general vein like just sort of fit in with that although it is very funny to imagine like a steely dan guy in rural new york that's like that doesn't feel right somehow but uh yeah they're everywhere i guess basically. yeah they are i mean they're on the radio enough you know anywhere and everywhere in the world that really anyone can find them pretty easily right right um but yeah that was just the other you know that was the only other anecdote that i remember because you know in college so much of our you know kind of joint college experience was like just being obsessed with music and playing music and trying to find like new shit but i don't really remember ever listening to and certainly not like delving into you know yeah Dan discography you know for me it came after college really so right 
And do you know what caused that to happen? I mean, maybe you've already talked about that with other people, but yeah, I have. I mean, <laughs> well, in, in in very brief, then you know? in very brief. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, our mutual friend Winston was really the person who kind of got me into them because he uh, played me Babylon Sisters. Oh yeah. Um, and then I, I had also it. been seeing, yeah, and that was just like blew my mind. I because again, I hadn't heard anything after 1974 at that point. So right. Um, and also I had been uh, going through a period where I was kind of reinvestigating some classic rock bands that I had previously written off. Like I was uh, in a yes phase around right. that time because yeah, like I don't know the wisdom that was passed down to me in like middle school was just that like yes was like lame. Uh, yeah. But then I yeah. heard roundabout on the radio and was like, you know what? Fuck that. This like this is awesome. Um, right. Yeah. And uh, the Asia artwork had been kind of like popping up everywhere. And I was like, what is this album? Like later Steely Dan, like what is going on? Like I need to see I need to figure out what this is. And I think I had it like on my computer, on my iPod when I heard Babylon Sisters. So after I heard Babylon Sisters, you know, via Winston, then I think I just like literally the next day through yeah. on asia and was just like you know like the part where they do the you were high with the backup vocals like, yeah yeah right exactly. you were very high like from that moment i was like this is fucking hilarious like where is this music in all my life is this right right fucking hilarious what, like it's it's a completely different world definitely it is yeah like his delivery this kind of like mock jazz guy i don't know yeah what of it is just very funny well, and, and then, then asia the too the, the space like at, at, that album opens so perfectly too because it's like so it's like so small kind of at the beginning like there's just like like right black cow starts there's like barely anything actually happening and then like little by little these new layers are introduced i feel like it is a really great way to get into like that era of them in a lot of ways i mean babylon sisters kind of similarly really very slowly builds up to something right but, yeah, going um, from uh, Black Cow into Asia, which is kind of like, you know, yes or other, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Fusion or even prog rock. Um, yeah, like after that, I was just like, yeah. this is fucking amazing. <laughs> I need to right. listen to right And I, I pretty much listened to no other band for like a year after that. Like I was so. That makes sense. I was yeah. so deep into it. Like they shot up the ranks of my, you know. Yeah, and then once they're in there, that starts to influence everything else you're thinking about, like yeah. other music or whatever. Because it really is like they're genreless in a way that uh, I think is really cool. I think to a certain extent, some people would put them down for that or something. Like, what is this? You know, like, but that's like they they created something that is actually original and it's therefore timeless as well. Like, it's not dated. The yeah, I mean, they were their peers are. I mean, obviously they have, you know, tons of influences that you can trace them back to, but their thing itself, I feel like is fairly unique and kind of like opens up these gateways to other, you know, genres that came after it, like, you know, city pop, for example, you know, if you're right, right, exactly. Or, um, yeah, like they keep coming up in like, <laughs> like these Mario Kart Steely Dan sync ups keep yeah, popping right. up on Twitter and, you know, it just fits. You can perfectly. draw a line yeah musically definitely and then the 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 lyrical content which is something that i've never been like i'm just not really a lyrics guy yeah. ultimately Same. but lyrically i do think um what's so incredible about the way they approach songwriting is it ends up it ends up feeling like a much more realistic portrayal of the world when it was made 
than I think a lot of their contemporaries, which is sort of what we're talking about today. Yeah. In general, I think that like, it's not prophetic music because it's not actually talking about the future, you know, like uh, some of maybe Donald Fagan's solo stuff is talking about, but like Steely Dan in general is, is, and I, they've said as much, I think like fixated on the present on the seventies, essentially like on America in the seventies, what it's actually like. And it makes, it makes them just like so interesting to really get deep into i think honestly you know yeah i mean i feel like they're almost these uh sort of i don't know about cultural commentators but they're they're kind of more like i feel like a lot of the music it's coming from people who were kind of enmeshed in the scene or the la music scene or you know right i guess if you you know the counterculture um whereas steely dan i wouldn't necessarily say they're like taking a counter countercultural view of that scene but they're kind of they're more like observational in terms of how they um they're they're critical it. like critical in the sense of a critic which does not imply like putting something down right it yeah. just means you're like examining it and and trying to sort of contextualize it and everything right. right the the boomer narrative of the 60s and 70s and like what popular culture and american culture in general was it's becoming more and more clear to me, at least, and I don't think I'm the only one at all, that, that that's a real kind of, it's it's highly fictionalized, let's say, you know, like the sort of, um, like the Aquarian age and the anti-war movement and, you know, how it brought about all this fantastic social change. And then un unfortunately in the 80s, the Reagan revolution. <laughs> took a lot of that away or whatever. And there's just yeah. this sort of like brushing past anything that happened in the seventies after Watergate, basically as being like unimportant, sort of like, like everything's frozen. Like we did it and now we're waiting. And that sort of counterculture narrative, I think like Steely Dan is a very good, like counter argument to that. A lot of their, their stuff, even though they don't really write in a political fashion at all like they don't really concern themselves with politics that's not what i'm saying but you know right. like they do concern themselves with society you know one of the hard things about steely dan is like where to actually place them in you know in comparison to their contemporaries like right some people put them right. like more in the yacht rock category right which is kind of like a like i feel like a modern construction basically like i don't know I don't know who coined the term. I certainly didn't yeah. hear it until the like web series came out. I think that's like where it came from. 2006, 2007. So that's like, you know, it makes sense to a certain extent, right? Like you can definitely draw parallels between a lot of those bands. And then there's also the fact that a lot of them seem to genuinely like boats, you know, so <laughs> like, you know, it makes sense, but it's also uh, because it's like a post facto, uh, you know genre or pseudo genre yeah. it's it's not actually that useful for like understanding them right like well, there's not actually applied you right know. and like like how much of a commonality is there really between like seals and crofts and steely dan or like you know crosby yeah. nash or whatever <laughs> you know like you know like they're all guys that you know generally you know some of them at least make interesting music or whatever and a lot of it is kind of like smooth and groove oriented and maybe there's some like fun harmonies and stuff but it's also like uh, yeah it's just kind of a meaningless genre a, a better version of that 
which is still not entirely accurate, would be to sort of lump them in with like the Eagles and Warren Zevon and to to an extent like Fleetwood Mac, right? All of whom are, I would say, Yacht Rock adjacent, honestly. You know, Mm -hmm. like they're not Yacht Rock. I don't think anyone would suggest that. But that, I think, is a more accurate kind of place to put them, though I'm still not satisfied with it, you know? Yeah, I'm sure that they're in some fashion part of like the L.A. scene because a lot of their like Gaucho, for example, is sort of these little like, you know, miniature portraits of like L.A. in the late 70s. But, I, you know, it's hard to place where they how they were actually involved in everything right. that was going on there at the time. Right. Which is uh, is, you know, that a- anonymity or sort of pseudo anonymity is is. um it's useful for the type of music they're making. And yep. it also is, is relatable. I would argue, you know, like as a, as an adult, like when I was a teenager, I would have said, no, I want to be Warren Zevon. You know, I want to be like shooting guns with Hunter Thompson and like, <laughs> you know, you know, getting arrested in, uh, in uh, Havana with, you know, whoever it is in lawyers, guns and money or whatever. But like, as an adult, I'm like, no, I probably wouldn't want to actually be a part of any of that it sounds like it's pretty intense and like most of those other people who were part of that scene did not uh fare very well i guess you know (laughs) (laughs) to a certain extent like you know yeah uh I don't really know anything about the history of the music industry, but it does seem like a lot of people ended up making that move around the same time. Like for the turn from the sixties to the seventies, you see a lot more California based stuff, you know, like, like Motown moving their center of operations from Detroit to California. I mean, I think they did still keep recording some stuff in Detroit, but like all the big, names you know and like they had a new session band out in california and everything and you you hear the sound changes even a bit like there's the center of gravity is moving towards the west coast for whatever reason and that seemed to me like something that might be kind of interesting for us to talk about you know kind of like the sort of uh connected to like the whole manifest destiny or sort of like the romance of the frontier which is so like central to the american whatever it is the american the american dream as they say right you know (laughs) it is yeah and i feel like in the 60s the idea of california was this kind of like idealized utopia you know right and i feel like you know the hippie scene coming out of that was kind of connected to that um and just kind of embracing that idea pretty explicitly um you know I, i feel like things kind of had already maybe not died down, but by the time Donald and Walter got there, you know, the Manson murders had already happened. So I feel like they're kind of coming to it in the kind of post hippie, post utopia, whatever, you know, you want to call it era. 
Um, yeah, right. Which I like think the, informs a lot of their music and maybe why they were even absolutely know, successful. absolutely like the California they're in is sort of like like uh, inherent vice, you know, yeah. that kind of like like everybody's either working for the government or working for the drug dealers or right. not working at all, you know, and it's a, like there's still this ability to live on barely anything on the beach, but like. <laughs> everything's just everything's just so ominous you know right. like right sort of just behind that initial like scrim of sunshine and rock and roll and everything is just like you know the weird organization of dentists you know that are drugging all these you know young rich girls or whatever and <laughs> like the um lapd and the cia working together and everything like Steely Dan doesn't really write songs about any of that, but it's it's so clearly like just adjacent to that. A it lot is, of their yeah. stuff, you know, like which, you know, is uh, probably a good artistic decision because it's uh, like kind of honestly boring to write songs about the CIA. Like, I feel <laughs> like it, <laughs> it's not really that interesting. Well, it's embedded but, uh, in their sound, too, because I feel like, you know, the what the Steely Dan experiment kind of was, was like a lot of the music itself sounds like, you know, kind of sunny California pop rock. And I feel like for so long, people kind of misinterpreted, you know, their, their aims because uh, the surface of their music is so kind of like, it's so friendly. It's so easy to listen to, you know, especially like can't buy a thrill starting there. You right. know, that's just like the singles on that album are such like perfect uh, representations of like California, like seventies, California rock. Absolutely. Yeah. But then the lyrics themselves, these little narratives, these stories that they're telling um, are just, you know, they're a lot more ominous and dark and unsettling and and complicated and, even. Yeah. Right. Because like that sort of I feel like the classic California rock song is like a Beach Boys song or something like in the first generation of it. Right. Yeah. And so it's all like, you know, I. uh I have a great time in my car, you know, <laughs> like, and it's like the whole song is that, and it's perfect. It's just, yeah. a, it's just fantastic. Right. Cars and, and girls, you know? Yeah. Cars and girls. And, and, uh, the songs they're writing scan like that, you know, in that period, the songs they're writing, they scan like that at first. And then you think about it for a minute and it's actually a lot more complicated, right? Yeah. Like it's a lot more sort of real life in that sense. And then I think also like that sheen you were talking about, like that's the other thing that's so important about the sort of move to California is the technology. All of the uh, electrical components that go into the mixing desks and the compressors and the noise, you know, what, what is it? What is it? The noise reduction system that failed <laughs> on uh, on uh, Katie Lied, yeah. uh, you know, like all of that stuff is all thanks to the military. It's all thanks to the military industrial complex and all these like massive defense contractors that are churning out smaller and smaller integrated circuits and transistors and all that stuff for the missiles.
know, this guy, Owsley Stanley, who's the inspiration for Kid Charlemagne, right? You know, and they've yeah. they've said as much after the fact. I, it might have been that they waited until after he died. I don't really know. <laughs> but um, he's uh, he's this guy who, uh, you know, he was the like the road manager for the dead, at least at some point, And he invented their wall of sound like PA system. Right. Because earlier in the 60s, you've got all these bands that are playing these massive shows and they have to rely on the PA at the venue. And, you know, they're not miking the drums. They're not miking the amplifiers. Like it's just a mess, right? You know, you can't hear the band if you're at these big venues at that point in time. And so Owsley Stanley, he designs this massive system and it's like really complicated i think he got yeah. like some patents or whatever like it was state of the art at the time right well it looks amazing when you see photos of the wall of sound on that um on the grateful dead tour in like 1974 it's just these like enormous towers stacked right like, literally right like, exactly exactly you know, dozens of feet high and like i know it's based on his own like theories about sound waves and um I don't know. The guy was just like a, a kind of mad scientist. Yeah. And I th I mean, I think like one of the main things that it did was um, it. I don't know how they did this with the circuitry, but so like basically the guys wouldn't hear themselves like behind them coming from the wall. Like it there was this like oh. feedback reduction system so they could be standing in front of this massive wall of speakers. Yeah. But it wouldn't feedback through their guitars and their microphones and so on. Uh, and I mean, I think actually like the Grateful Dead as an organization, they actually have like a bunch of patents yeah. because they were like they were really at the forefront of this the same way, you know, a lot of these other bands were. And the reason for that is Owsley, who's this guy, you know, he's this sort of hippie drug kingpin because he's we sort of skipped over that he's making <laughs> he's making like not all the acid in the country, but the lion's share of the acid, you know, in the country in the late 60s through the mid seventies he's making. Yeah. Um, and Did he provide the uh, LSD for the acid tests. So I think he, he did. I think so. I, uh, my guess is that the first couple, cause I think the acid test started in like 64 or yeah, something. Like 60, I'm not sure. The, maybe a little later. Yeah. Cause yeah. There's a period like the first few years of the like San Francisco scene, acid was still legal so they're getting sandoz acid from okay. uh switzerland but basically so owsley's this guy getting getting back to owsley he's <laughs> he's the scion of this incredibly important kentucky political family his his grandfather was a senator and the governor of kentucky you know his family's super rich yeah uh and he got uh you know he got his degree in uh some sort of engineering and went to work for Rocketdyne which is this, uh, you know, rocket manufacturing company in uh, Southern California. And then he's working at JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory for a while. So he's like, he's like literally a rocket scientist, you know, <laughs> wow. which, uh, you know, there was a lot of money in rocket science at that point in time. Like the Rocketdyne factory was churning out the engines that they put on the Saturn V rockets that went to the moon, you know, like, but they're not just making engines for you know, NASA rockets, right? Like okay. most of what they're doing is cruise missiles, mm. you know, nuclear, nuclear missiles, like the, <laughs> the stuff that kept the cold war going. So the same guy was behind this and also LSD and also the wall of sound. <laughs> exactly. And it, it just purely coincidentally, apparently uh, 
he happens to quit JPL just as acid has been made illegal and the legal supply dries up. He moves to San Francisco and starts cooking acid and, you know, falls in with the Grateful Dead soon after. And then and Kid so Charlemagne is about that. So, about right, him, exactly. So right. Kid Charlemagne is about him. Yeah, right. And it starts out, you know, it's sort of... Um, well, I think the character is yeah. based on him. It's not an adaptation of his like life story. Yeah, no, no, that's that's true. And it's more about I think it's um you know, it's not it right, it's not an adaptation of his life story and it's it's almost more about in a sense um the song is using him. I mean, this is my opinion at least. The song is using yeah. him as uh as a sort of window into uh talking about the lifespan of the the hippie culture, you know, like yeah starts out he's on top of the world he's you know he's turning all the kids on everybody's having a great time right <laughs> on in the third verse uh now your patrons have all left you in the red your low rent friends are dead this life can be so strange all those dayglow freaks who used to paint the face they've joined the human race some things will never change which sums up really well i feel like what happens you know what happens to all the hippies by the end of the 70s right. like where do they all go because you know, most of them aren't still around. Well, some of them died. The low rent friends are dead, but most of the rest of them, they've joined the human race. Yeah. Right. The human race. I've always interpreted that as the rat race, you know, just kind of like exactly, joining yeah. the normals, joining the, the capitalist, you know, uh, strivers, you know, right. The, the hippies and the yippies become the yuppies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that and, kind of I mean, anticipated the eighties, right? Cause this song came out in, 76 so they're actually a few years ahead of the curve in terms of right uh, right exactly anticipating where we were headed exactly. as, a, as, a, as a culture yeah yeah there was no you know we had no more need for owsley you know he'd he'd invent you know he developed the the new sound systems that would you know would be go and go on to be you know used for all these arena rock bands and everything you know you've got all these bands they've got these massive walls like judas priest or van halen or whatever right like they're you got these massive walls of sound for their live shows. So we don't need them for that. And we don't need them for the acid because people are doing cocaine now. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, you know, some people, some people will get into this sort of thing and they get way too conspiratorial about it. But it is true that there's a lot more like uh, military industrial and big tech stuff going on around <laughs> the California music scene right. than the sort of common narrative would have you believe right and do you think uh, the common narrative focuses too much on the hippie thing as as like what california was at the time yeah i mean yeah honestly i think i do like yeah. uh well I mean, isn't that just because like the, there, you know well isn't Sorry, that just go. because the music is kind of romanticized by that generation now i mean you right. take all the bands yeah. that are you know associated with that you know jefferson airplane the grateful dead obviously Right, the doors, uh, you know, yeah. Have you seen the memorabilia? Rusty old memorabilia. Souvenirs, a perfect doom. In the back of Louis DeCan's back room. Have you seen the memorabilia? Dusty old memorabilia. Souvenirs, a perfect doom. In the back of Louis DeCan's back room. Have you met that lovely creature? The exceptional Ivy King. Just what she's after She's got a Jones for the real thing 
National scientific project promoting collaboration among the world scientists um, for like a widespread optimistic vision of the future. You know, Fagan is playing with the sort of like uh, optimistic futurism. So like that's where you get the spandex yeah. jackets and you get the um, the transatlantic yeah. trains. You know, New York to Paris in ninety minutes. Paris to New York in ninety minutes. Right, and so to juxtapose that then with. Um a track that I was really taken with on uh, Sunken Condos, his album from 2012. There's a track called Memorabilia, uh, which has the lyric, oh, yeah. uh, in, a, in a room right off the kitchen, there's an old gas centrifuge, color film of Castle Bravo. Girl, you know that shot was huge. There's a crate full of lead-lined pipes, a photo of laughing Navy types on the island east of the Carolines, lovely island. Uh, and so that's that's you know talking directly about the Castle Bravo thermonuclear test, which was the first uh, hydrogen bomb that where they they like uh, set it off in the Marshall Islands on uh, Bikini Atoll, and pretty much like thoroughly irradiated the Marshall Islands like by accident essentially. I mean, they knew they were going to displace some people, but they essentially displaced everyone because they did like a calculation error, and the bomb was like fifty times more powerful than they expected. Oh, wow. So it's this like immense tragedy, you know, like there's yeah. there's all these people who just they had to leave their homes and they never got to come come back, essentially. Wow. And it was also the first atomic test, if I remember correctly, that was filmed. So you, you can see the video of it, you know, like happening. And it is like it's just this massive, horrific event. Right. But the, yeah. the way that he's framing it in the song is like it's it's like uh it's like a, a sort of survey of the memorabilia in this guy's house. Presumably he was at the test. Maybe he was part of the testing crew, you know, and he's got photos of him and his friends and other memorabilia from the test because it was his oh, job. Wow. Interesting. Right. Yeah. You know, like uh, it's a song that's about all the same stuff, but it's about what actually happened rather than the sort of boosterist, like oh, what a beautiful world it will be, you know, like when we master you know, when we harness the atom and we develop all these plastic <laughs> products and we, right. you know, like we're traveling across the world in no time and so on, you yeah. know. I mean, you would never guess that that song ha is about that if you just like. Right. Well, yeah, without. that's the other thing is like so, sonically, right? It's it's, it's so, so it's so smooth, smooth and, and yeah, it's, it's basically easy listening. You know, it could play on light FM pretty easily. Yeah, absolutely. It's it if if anything, it's kind of sonically. Like it, it sounds like it was it was made by the people in IGY, you know, like it, it's it is sort of a retro futurist like spaceship, you know, like, yeah, it's got those smooth, sleek lines. It's all chromed out, luxurious in some sort of mid-century way, because yeah. that's kind of what he was trying to do, like in. Um, you know, he has this appreciation of, of Muzak or like, you know, um, in the Asia right. documentary, he talks about you know, his love of fake, fake jazz. So I feel like that yeah, kind of encompasses yeah. like, I think what he's referring to by fake, fake jazz is kind of like music and like 
you know, TV soundtrack music and just, you know, um, commercial music. And right, I feel right. like what he's doing on, you know, memorabilia and a lot, you know, throughout his solo work also, you know, like a lot of the night flying comic period is he's kind of marrying <clears throat> his genuine appreciation of that music to some of the, like, I don't want to say hidden history, but sort of some of the, like, no, it's not. I mean, it, but, but I know what you're saying. It's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's a song that's coming from inside the history or something yeah. rather, you know, or it, it's, it's, um, he's marrying it to a more cynical view of the time period or a more yeah. like realistic view of the time period, you yeah, know, like with I, IGY, you know, the song is so, um, you know, it's so, you know, wonderful world of, of tomorrow. And it's so like optimistic sounding and it's so, you know, sleek, you know, what those people thought the future was going to sound like almost exactly. Like if you, yeah, you know what I mean? Like it still sounds kind of futuristic, but then because we can take this sort of retrospective view of the time period, right? Because that song came out like 25 or 30 years after the actual IGY, the whole thing is just kind of loaded, you know, now it's, it's like, right. It's right. this jaded perspective, right? And that's right. kind of same with memorabilia, right? Isn't it like, you know, when we think of memorabilia, you think of all these like, you know, nostalgia and you think of like all these maybe trinkets that you've collected right. that remind me of the, the better times. But again, right. he does a, it's it's a twist on that, really. Yeah, I mean, I could almost imagine that like the the guy who's in these photos with his Navy buddies you know, he could almost be a character in IGY right. talking about how great the future is going to be now that we have this technology. Uh, and then in yeah. memorabilia, now he's elderly and looking back on his actual past. Well, what did he actually do? He, you know, he blew up an island, you know, with, <laughs> with, with a test bomb and it inspired the name of a bathing suit. You know, like that's <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't write a better, you know, like the bikini that comes from right. that that was named after that that bomb test. Oh wow. And it's it actually now that I'm thinking about it, the how similar does that sound to the actual life arc of Owsley Stanley, say, right? Like Yeah. You know, he who's sort of lauded as this great, you know, like like he expanded the the possibilities for what a rock band could do on a tour and he opened up the minds of millions with his acid but you know like well what did he do first well he built <laughs> he, he built cruise missiles you know right. <laughs> and it almost yeah i mean it's just a really good metaphor i think for at least in my opinion for america you know and it it's yeah. it feels to me a lot like how i grapple with what it is to be an american in a lot of ways to sort of deal with that like pile of skulls that you're you know <laughs> you're your civilization is built off of, you know, I mean, that that's maybe getting a little too dramatic, but you know what I mean? Like there well, really is a, yeah. I mean, do you think that's part of why Steely Dan has, you know, had this recent resurgence of popularity that now I feel like Americans, especially like the millennial generation have this kind of like jaded view of society. Unfortunately it's framed as like wokeness by, by the right, but it's not really, it's more of like, I don't know. It's just, yeah, a more jaded uh, perspective on yeah. like, the American myth, you know? I think so. Absolutely. I think uh, as much as I like, like two songs, I'm just off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, You know, 60s songs or, you know, what whatever, like uh, Fortunate Son by CCR or like Volunteers by uh, Jefferson right. Airplane, which are both songs that are actually pretty anti-America in their way. 
but they're also like i can't really relate to the to the mind that creates a song like that because mm. it doesn't have that sort of ironic distance you know yeah. like like they seem to be actually you know like mad at america or something for that in a way that i just like i, I just can't really relate to it feels old fashioned and i just we may yeah. have even touched on this earlier. Like, I don't feel like Steely Dan comes across as old fashioned to me as, you know, it. I can still, like you were saying, I can relate to it very closely. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just pulling this up because I had this written down. Yeah, uh, this is from an interview in the 70s. Donald Fagan says, if we were ahead of our time, it was simply because we grew up with a certain natural ironic stance, which later became the norm in society. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much that kind says of it says it a lot better than i tried to so <laughs> yeah because a lot of like the hippie um you know a lot of like the the sort of psychedelic hippie pop of the era you know like that ccr song and also jefferson airplane it's kind of like it's or, or you know protest songs you know go back to dylan and the protest song movement it's really right. kind of um almost a call to action because the idea is that you know music can help elevate you know these ideals and and you know inspire you know people to become involved politically or involved in their you know it's a genuinely earnest calling for music to you know create social change and i feel like right steely den never i don't think there was any pretense in terms of you know like what their songs are or inspiring people to do on any level right and this actually i'm gonna i'm gonna grab another interview yeah. line that i think um yeah would be worth delving into for just a moment this is from that same era walter says uh we're not topical songwriters we're trying always not to write the same lyric but to write lyrics that have to do with something interesting and so when we get an idea on the lines of that one we don't want it to sound like a phil oaks song and then he pauses go. and says may you rest in peace <laughs> and and this this kind of this kind of blew my mind because uh I just recently learned that Phil Oaks, you know, who died in I think 76, thereabouts. So this this interview would have been from right before then, right? Who's definitely he's responsible for a lot of that kind of song you're talking yes. about, the like call to action songs. And, you know, a number of them are really good. You know, I'm not putting him down at all. He was clearly an extremely talented songwriter. But what happened to him is he went off the deep end. Like his inability to grapple with the fact that the Vietnam War kept going on. Mm. you know after these mass mobilizations we're you know we're still sending troops over there it's just getting worse and worse he essentially lost his mind you know and not only did he lose his mind in his last year of life he claimed that phil oaks was actually dead and had been killed by john butler train who was who was an undercover cia assassin and he inhabited this new character for the last year of his life. He wouldn't answer to Phil. His politics changed. His voice changed. He he was like, no, I'm actually a CIA assassin. I killed Phil Oaks. He's dead. And like lived the life of this like far right reactionary CIA assassin. And going through like a schizophrenic episode or something. I guess. I mean, that one yeah. would imagine. Right. You know, <laughs> like one would imagine. And then eventually he hung himself after like a year of that. But it turns out, like, I don't know the answer to any of this. John Butler Train was a real guy in the CIA. 
my guess is because of the fact that they were musicians, they probably didn't know Phil Oaks, but I'm sure they had friends in common. Walter Becker probably knew the broad strokes of this. You think so? I'm not saying that he's referencing it here, but it was like yeah. it was well known that that was the case. That was like, happening. Yeah. Phil's musician friends were trying to rescue him during this time period. You know, it was a very public struggle with mental illness and drug addiction. But he's such a perfect example for them to use right there as some guy yeah. who like he tried too hard to fix a world that can't be fixed by one person with a guitar, you mm -hmm. know, and that's a tragic story. But uh, well, I think also, you know, when Steely Dan is kind of entering the picture, they've seen all of that kind of protest music or kind of hippie music at by that point, it had really just become so yeah. mainstream as to be co-opted by, you know, Right. The music industry itself, you know, it had been it had become a package that was exactly sold to teenagers. Yeah. I mean, it was basically just like, you know, the counterculture itself had just become another, you know, branding. Uh, Didn't uh, they actually even like sell a song to the grassroots? I feel like maybe they might have. I feel like is one of those bands that's like a faux hippie band, basically, <laughs> you know, that's like created by the I record. I think they label. did. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. not sure it was ever recorded, but I think I read that somewhere. But yeah, they right. They they got there at the tail end of that, right? Like you were saying, like post Manson, yeah, post hippie, you know. And that's why the... I think musically there's no pretense really. Like that's why, yeah. you know, the surfaces of their songs, they're kind of just like I mean, the the music itself is so radio ready in a way, because right. I don't think they cared about, you know, like authenticity or something yeah they didn't they weren't interested in that i mean they just no but that i i think you're exactly right and i I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to know what you think about the accusation that someone someone might respond to you with on that that they yeah. that they're basically joking right or that that it's like a piss take yeah see to me steely dan isn't exactly doing a bit like it's not yeah like yes there is satire in their music but it's not like the music itself, you know, like a, a band that we were talking about earlier, like Ween, or, you know, yeah. maybe you could even bring Frank Zappa. It's like they're parodying a specific genre. Affinity for that genre doesn't matter. They just enjoy the kind of taking the piss out of it, you know? Right, right. But I don't yeah. think, because Steely Dan, it's not parody music, you know, it's not, like it's humorous, but it's not comedy music. It's, um, yeah, it's a lot subtler than that, I guess. Um, and I think part of it, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, part of it is just how seriously they take the craft of making it, I think. Right. Totally. Um, you know, like, uh, like I mean, like, to get back to IGY, right, yeah. which, of course, is not a Steely Dan song, but I think it's safe to say fits within our, yeah. our purview here. For sure. Um, it, the the lyrics are, there is a, there's a wry humor to the lyrics, definitely, right? Like, the chorus, especially, like, what a beautiful world it will be. He's that's not sung entirely in earnest. There is a there is a grin at least that's sort of part yeah. of that. There's a smirk um, behind it for sure. But it it's sold fully by how like how seriously the song is 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 done. He worked so hard to get it to sound like that sleek, smooth spaceship, you know? Yeah. Like it's not half-assed at all. And if it was half-assed, it would probably come across to me as a piss take.
So I did. Uh, I rewatched Lodge Forty Nine recently, um, like uh, about a month ago, which is just like you know. I mean, it's just such a great show. And I was thinking about this quote that I read in an interview with Jim Gavin, the creator, um, which I'm probably misremembering slightly. But the the interviewer said something to him like, um, like the the characters in the show are the least ambitious people who are who've ever been on TV or something like that. Basically, like saying like uh all these people in your show are losers you know like they're <laughs> like none of them seem to be at all interested in the bootstraps mentality you know like bettering themselves and whatever you know like sort of implying that like the normal way to be is to be like uh you know i, I was going to say entourage characters but those guys actually do even less with their lives so that's <laughs> not that's not a good example but yeah. you know trying to sort of subtly put down the characters in the show, like they're somehow abnormal because they don't like uh, start a clothing line or, or, you know, right. suddenly have these incredible jobs. I, I mean, I guess you could say like Liz at, at very least, like has some moments where she does consciously choose not to uh, make more money, you know? Right. Uh, but, but I mean, they're I, sort of drifting through life, but they're they not are, actively. But I guess what, what bothered yeah. me about the way it was, it was framed was this sort of like, like, who are these weirdos? Why did you choose to write a show about these weirdos who don't want to do better in life? You know, mm. and that rubbed me the wrong way because I feel like. Like uh, the characters are actually some of the, the most realistically drawn characters I've ever seen on television. Right. You know, like they feel like everybody I've ever met, you know, like they have debt, they have uh boring jobs you know like they can't really find the motivation to look for a better one because they're so depressed with their current job you know all that sort of stuff it feels so realistic it i guess feels unrealistic to someone who's in entertainment you know or in the entertainment press and is kind of inundated with these weird uh capitalist caricatures all the time yeah but um that was on my mind when i was preparing for this episode because i feel like a similar thing not necessarily and it's not a put down exactly but i feel like a similar sort of thing is said about steely dan at yeah. times their songs are full of you know sort of like losers and weirdos and gamblers and things like that you know what <laughs> i mean short story about a character like that is a lot more relatable than like um riders on the storm you know like there's a killer on the road something something <laughs> about a toad whatever you know like i mean it's just <laughs> like like i i just uh I feel like we're sort of conditioned to a certain extent not to accept stories about like fairly regular people. Yeah. And uh well take the the Hey 19 guy for an example. I mean Right, right. Well, that's a great example. Yeah. You don't want to identify that. you don't want to identify with him, but you know, 
Right. Who hasn't been at a bar at 1am and seen some like drunken 30 something, you know, hitting on a younger girl. I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, it, it's that guy you knew in college who was like in a fraternity and he was like kind of a douche. And uh, like, what's yep. that guy up to now? You know, right. It, it's sort of this. Right. Right. You know, exactly. You all, we all know that guy, you know. Right. No, it's it's yeah, it's a, an incredibly common thing to witness, you know. It's also and, like t- time uh, out of mind. Also, it's it's I don't know if it's an anti-drug song, but it's about a guy who is on drugs. Yeah, what is he feeling in that moment when he's, you know, finally scored the heroin that he's about to take? He's like really fucking happy about it. Right. Right. Of because of course he is, right? You know, like, <laughs> that <laughs> that's the realistic thing. That's what would yeah. happen. Even if even if uh at any other time he's like, God, I, I gotta stop doing this. This is terrible for me. Of course, in the moment you're gonna be like, Yeah, like yeah. party time, you know. And it's so appropriate that that song is such a, like, peppy, like, disco song, essentially. Like, it really is maybe the closest they ever got to disco in that sense. Yeah, it is. 